gives the heart the ability to respond. It takes a miracle for somebody to respond to what the word commands, and that's exactly the miracle that the Holy Spirit does in the new birth. So we're relying on God to bless the reading and the commanding and the authoritative preaching of his word. That's the method that we've been given. That's what we lean on, whether you're someone in the pulpit, whether you're a parent at home just instructing your children and giving discipline in the course of your day. We lean on the word of God to accomplish what only God can accomplish in people's hearts. This raises another question. Paul says this to Timothy, command and teach these things. Well, who am I? Honestly, isn't that, isn't that ignorant? Isn't that arrogant? Who am I to speak with such authority? Who am I to preach so authoritatively? Don't you realize, Paul, who I am? How young I am? The church in Ephesus was pretty troubled. We know from church history that this congregation eventually folded. They had some issues. They had some serious threats. You can almost imagine Timothy saying, command and teach these things. So I can barely get them to listen to me about anything. I can barely get them to respect me. They all have their own opinions. They all come to church on Sunday evaluating me from their own viewpoint. And so Paul explains that not only does a good servant preach authoritatively, but the sixth attribute in our list of nine, a good servant models maturity. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Depending on your translation, you might have a more literal rendering of the term there used for despise. Literally means look down on, to downlook someone. And he says, let no one look down on you for your youth. We surmise that Timothy was probably in his 30s. Maybe by some standards that would be youth today. Maybe for others, we kind of look at 30 and be like, that, that, that seems older. It depends. Some of these things are cultural. Some of these things are generational. It's interesting. Note, this is the only thing the Bible says about age as far as qualifications for a pastor or an elder. This is the only comment on physical, biological age in regard to the office of pastor. Now, we do also have in the previous chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. So you don't want a neophyte. You don't want a brand new convert in the pulpit. You don't want a brand new convert taking on a mantle of leadership in the local church because that can be dangerous for their soul. So basically what we have here is the teaching that spiritual age, how long you've been walking with the Lord, matters more than your physical age. Now, usually the two go together. Right? Somebody who's been walking a long time on this planet also generally may be walking a long time with the Lord. But a fresh convert, they might have a, a lifetime of experience behind them, may not be as spiritually mature as someone in their 20s, 30s, or 40s who's been walking with the Lord since they were three or four. So there's two observations here in this verse. A good servant models maturity. First, Physical age does not disqualify for ministry or qualify. It neither qualifies you nor disqualifies you. And you can put age in here. You can look at physical age or you can look at anything else. Your socioeconomic level, right? Your lived experiences. This is one that culture really emphasizes. Well, you don't understand my experiences. You haven't lived these experiences. Belonging to a particular social group. None of these attributes can qualify you. What does qualify you? Well, it's mastery of the word of God. 
and it's modeling the Word of God. You probably know the verse in 2 Timothy 3.16 where we read that all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, theomnustas. But the very next verse says, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Scripture alone, mastery of it and obedience to it, is what qualifies a person to serve in ministry. Everything that you need to be a good servant is in this book. So Paul essentially says to Timothy, don't make any excuses about your age. Be bold. You know, today we extend adolescence, right? Well, I'm only blank. I'm only 27. I'm still on my parents' insurance. It doesn't matter. We're not to make excuses. But notice, we just concluded talking about how authoritatively we should be handling the word of God, especially those who are in ministry. Physical age does not qualify or disqualify you, but also, and here's the thrust of Paul's point, whatever you lack in age, whatever you lack in gravitas, whatever you lack in that which would naturally make people listen to you and respect you and honor what you say to them, he says, whatever you lack in those areas, make up for in virtue. So how is Timothy to establish his authority? The word of God is sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work. How is Timothy to operate? Not by flaunting his authority. Not by blindly waving it around and expecting people just to submit. Modeling mature Christian virtue. Be an example. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So speech and conduct, right? That's your walk and your talk. Both of them matter. They're inseparable from each other. And then love, faith, purity. We know that from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the sine qua non. It's the thing that if you don't have it, nothing else matters of Christian virtue, right? If you, if you have everything else but you don't have love, it doesn't matter. Model faith. So not only being rooted in the faith and the particular beliefs that we hold as Christians historically and biblically, but also being faithful, being faithful as a follower of Christ. Both of those ideas are in view here, modeling faith. And purity, purity of your heart, your soul, your mind, not just your outer conduct, also the the realm of your heart, the realm of your, your thought life. He's challenging Timothy to carry himself in, an, in such a way that can garner the imitation of saints that are two or three times his age. What you lack, Timothy, in boldness, what you lack in age, what you lack in natural gravitas, make up for in virtue, in spiritual fruit. You know, very often, I think, we think in our culture, it's the humble thing to do to downplay your message. Well, this is true for me. This book is true for me, but it may not be true for you. And we look at statements like that as humility, you're going to doubt anything. Don't doubt the word. Don't doubt the message. Doubt yourself. Downplay yourself as much as you possibly can, but don't doubt the content of the word of God. G.K. Chesterton said this in Orthodoxy. Follow this. This is interesting. Modesty, think of the importance of modesty, has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. 
You're meant to be doubtful about yourself, not the truth itself. He says, but this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does, does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not doubt, the divine reason. The old humility was a spur that prevented man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder, but the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. Don't doubt the message that you've been given. Doubt yourself. Downplay yourself. Downplay your own ability. But don't doubt the message that God has given you. And he says, be an example to all the believers in this way. What does it mean to be an example to all the believers? Here's a related question to that. Is the pastor held to a higher standard than the average person in the pew? I think if we took a survey, which I'm not recommending, we'd get different answers. I think if we took a survey among pastors, we would get very different answers. And you see, the answer is is technically no. He's held to the same standard as every believer, but he is held additionally responsible to be meeting that same standard in such a way as to serve to the rest of the believers as an example. Does that make sense? It's the same standard that he's held to as every believer in Christ. But he's so held to that same standard that he's to be the example held up before the rest of the congregation of this is how it's done. It's not a higher standard, but it's a greater level of fidelity to the same standard. He's to be an example to all the believers, younger and older than him. And so if he's to preach authoritatively and if he's to make up for his lack of natural authoritativeness with his own modeling of maturity and not let his age be an impeding factor, this implies that he's operating under a higher authority than himself. He is not the authority. This is not about Timothy. Listen, if you hear a pastor, and and this is appealing in our culture, but for a pastor to be very conversational in the pulpit, but somebody who often tells stories about themselves and is often drawing from their own experiences and opinions and insights and saying, well, just the other day, and, and goes on and on about himself and rarely cracks open this book, he's not operating under an authority higher than himself. It might make him an effective communicator, but is he operating under an authority higher than himself? And speaking of that higher authority, this is the seventh attribute of our nine. A good servant exposits scripture. Verse 13, look with me. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Literally, devote yourself. He's being wholly given over to this. And then the phrase is is in Greek, the reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. So this is something particular that he's supposed to be immersed in. A good servant is supposed to be absolutely absorbed in the ministry of the word. Not himself, not his own platform building. He's supposed to be absorbed in the ministry of the word. Do you remember when those first sort of prototypical deacons are called in Acts chapter 6? Right? And there's the dispute among the widows and the Hellenists. And some of the women are being neglected in the daily food distribution. And the apostles say... Hey, appoint some people for yourself in verses 2 through 4. But we will devote ourselves. We will stay focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. 
a minister of the word has to stay focused on his craft. He is a word worker. He's not to leave that. That doesn't mean that he slacks off in the other areas of the church. That's not to say that he's not a leader, that he doesn't have organizational skills. But the unique thing to which he's called is to be absorbed in the ministry of the word. The reading, the exhortation, the teaching. The reading here, you'll notice in the ESV, we insert the word the public reading. So this is a a, a reference to the public reading of scripture that was borrowed from the synagogue model, common with the Jews of the day, right? And we have it in our own order of service here, where we stand and we read a passage of scripture, and sometimes it's what we're preaching on, sometimes it's not, but it's because we're supposed to listen. Worship is dialogical. Did you know that? Worship is not monological. It's not just that you are singing one direction to God, singing in one direction, not actually singing one direction songs. That would not be very worshipful. But singing in one direction to God. And it's not just that you're only listening. There's conversation. You're singing to God. You're hearing the word of God preached. You're responding to God in song, in prayer, in the giving of gifts. Worship is a dialogue. The reading of scripture Turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah was sort of the original Pharisee in a good way. That sounds bad, but if you think about it, the Pharisees really did represent sort of the the theologically conservative movement of the day. And Nehemiah was the beginning of that. After the exile, after the people of God returned to their homeland, there was renewal. You have Ezra and you have Nehemiah on the civic and the political ends of things that are bringing about that renewal. And so as they're calling the people of God to respond, he models for us what this public reading of Scripture looks like. Bear with me, my pages are sticking together a bit. Nehemiah chapter 8. I just want to read the first six verses here. What is the origin of public reading of Scripture? And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the winter gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, brought, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women, And those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masariah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So you have the first pulpit. You have the first congregational reading. You have the standing for the reading of God's word. You have reverence. It's not just the private reading. It's the public reading of God's word. Christianity comes from this public model of God's communication. Listen, the Bible is not just 
a book full of private messages that God has for you and for your life. This is also the public record of all of God's founding documents in his relationship with his people. These are founding covenant documents. And when we read them aloud, hey, when we relate to God, it's not just me and my personal relationship with God. It's the public reading of God's word. It's that all of us together as a community are relating to this God. Then Paul also says that Timothy should devote himself to the exhortation and the teaching. So this is the exposition of Scripture. A good servant exposits Scripture. It's not enough to read it and let it hang in the air. Scripture requires interpretation. Look at the next two verses with me in Nehemiah, verses 7 and 8. Actually, I'll pick it up in verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. So there's response, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8. They read from the book the law of, the God, uh, the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So Ezra didn't just stand up and read it and let it hang in the air and descend from the platform. He gave the sense. He explained what it meant. Hey, listen, it's easy to sound smart. It's easy to rattle things off. It's easy to read and do a dramatic reading. But to break it down, to put the cookies on the bottom shelf sometimes, to make things understandable, the pastor should not only read Scripture, but should also exhort, should give application. Hey, there's a lesson here. We have to obey this. How is this going to change our lives this week? Not just abstract theology, but how does it affect our lives as we live in response? We must draw conclusions. The meaning of the text is knowable. Don't let anyone tell you that, well, we're not entirely sure what Paul meant in this culture, whether it's about sexuality, the role of women. The meaning is knowable. You can give the sense. You can exhort. You can teach from it. And you can bring application from it. And so pastors have to be absorbed in their study to understand this. They have to have a love for the Word of God and the theological teachings drawn from Scripture. So it speaks uniquely to people that are in this office where they preach and teach. But again, notice that to do so requires a unique gift. It requires a unique capacity. And so eighth of our nine attributes, a good servant stewards his gifts. Verses 14 and 15 do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So Timothy needed boldness, and he needed to be unashamed. Right? And if you survey the pastoral epistles, you might notice that. Because Paul tells him in the next book, 2 Timothy chapter 1, not to neglect the gift that he has. He says, stir it, fan it into flame. You've been given a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and have a sound mind, right? You're familiar with that. Paul was encouraging Timothy because he obviously lacked some boldness, some initiative in some areas. You also see it in chapter 1, 1 Timothy, verse 18. This charge I entrust you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So again, there's this reference to this moment when, by prophecy, this council of elders, whoever was there, is laying their hands on him. There's something unique. There was a capacity. There was a gift that Timothy had from the Holy Spirit that was being recognized, but he needed to fan it 
into flame. He couldn't let it sit dormant or it would putz out. And this is not just for Timothy, this is for us. We all have spiritual gifts. The moment of conversion, when the Holy Spirit fills you, you have spiritual gifts. And these can be refined, these can be used, these can be misused, but everybody has capacities for service to render to God. You see listings of them in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. If you're not familiar with some of those lists, I encourage you to take a look at them. But the important thing is not to take a quiz online and figure out, well, which one am I? That could be useful to you. The important thing is to look at what you're good at and look at the needs around you and say, how can I serve together with the whole body of Christ? Because this might be difficult to believe on a morning like this when we're a little short-handed in worship. God gives every church exactly what it needs in the body of Christ. What we have here in this room, this might not look like much, but the spiritual gifts that God has given each person sitting here who's committed to this local church is enough, not to do everything, not to be the church that's, that's well-known and famous for doing all of these things, and I don't, I don't want to supply that list. You can use your imagination, but there's so many things that we could do, theoretically, that we don't have the capacity for, but whatever God is calling us to do, whatever our station is, whatever our niche is, and the indispensable elements of church, gathering in worship, holding each other accountable, preaching, teaching, the sacraments, hey, God has given us all of the spiritual gifts needed for that. In his sovereignty, he dispenses exactly what we need when we need it. So again, let's guard against this false humility like Chesterton was talking about, this false humility of saying, oh, well, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't do that. Doubt yourself, but don't doubt the gift. Don't doubt the giver. If he's given you a spiritual gift to use in the body of Christ, then make use of it. Don't be the foolish servant in the parable of the talents who says, oh, master, I knew you uh, had some high standards, so I decided not to use my gift at all, my, my talent. I buried it. Look at Matthew 25. Refer back to that this week. Don't be that person. Invest it. Use it so that it can bear fruit. And Paul drives this point home by reminding Timothy of that moment of his ordination that we mentioned. This spiritual gift was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So what's going on here? Was Paul saying that Timothy was literally given a spiritual gift in a special way by direct revelation uh, in this moment in the first century here where the, the Holy Spirit was giving direct revelation still? Immediate divine revelation? Maybe. It's possible that something like that is going on. But we also have to look at part of this as being the, the outward sign of an inner reality. It's not that Timothy was completely unqualified for ministry until the moment they laid hands on him and then zapped him with power, and now he had a spiritual gift. It's much more likely that he already had the giftings and the call, and that there was a recognizing through prophecy and through the laying on of hands, which is just this Jewish custom that the Christian church inherited, representing solidarity, blessing, right? It's drawn from the consecration of the priests in Numbers chapter 8. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. 
So it's solidarity, it's identification, outwardly being signified what's inwardly going on. If you need something to liken it to, you might recall from Acts chapter 13, the first three verses there, you can take a look at it. But it's when the pastors and elders and teachers, when it's the people in the church at Antioch are gathered together and they're praying and they're worshiping and they're fasting, it's in that context that the Holy Spirit says, not to the individuals, but he actually says to the church leadership, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And then after laying hands on them and praying and worshiping, fasting some more, they sent them out and they go out on their first missionary journey. And he doesn't just give the individuals who are called some sort of secret prompting. There was probably an inward subjective calling, but it's an authoritative recognition on the part of the church leadership set these men apart. And you have prophecy, you have similar things going on that what we see in happening in 1 Timothy here. And the point of application for us is this, that you can't just call yourself into ministry. I actually deal with many people in the course of my work mobilizing for missions that feel called. Right? You feel called. Even that terminology is less than biblical. But unless those who are over you in the Lord, who are walking with the Spirit and paying attention to what God's doing in your life, and this, unless they can affirm it, and unless they can affirm it, not just by signing off on a, on a job reference, but they can put their hands on you and they can say, this person is an extension of our church, and we see what God's doing in their life, unless they can join with solidarity in you in that moment, then I wouldn't call it a call. You can't commission yourself. You can't send yourself. You can't ordain yourself into the ministry. And we recognize that there's extraordinary circumstances, and there's not always a body of faithful elders to recognize that, but ordinarily, I would say that this is how God works, based on this text. God works through the leadership of the local church. And then second, another observation here, there's, there's a special grace that's received through the affirmation of others. He's saying, Timothy, think of this moment. Remember when they put their hands on you. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember that experience? Maybe you're not a person that's in ministry, but was there a time when someone said, man, I, I saw the way that you dealt with that person. That was incredibly godly. Or the way that you handled that tough situation at work, or or man, I've seen the way that you serve in the church and you're cleaning and you're tireless week in, week out. Those times that God used somebody to affirm your gifts, Paul would say to us, hey, cling to that. Remember what that felt like. That wasn't by accident. Remember those moments where God reaffirmed your call through the affirmation of others. A good servant stewards his gifts And how does he do this? He does it publicly and persistently. Practice these things. Verse 15, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So he's supposed to practice them persistently, applying himself tirelessly. Ministry is not easy. It's not meant to be easy. My son made a joke to me a few weeks ago. He says, I want to be a pastor when I grow up. I said, why is that? And he said, well, you only have to work one day a week. (laughs) But that's not how it works. If that is how you think it works, then I encourage you, don't apply. (laughs) But a word worker is constantly to be refining and practicing his craft, wholly given over to the work. Immerse, 
immerse yourself in them. He's to be immersed in the work persistently and publicly. He says, so that all may see your progress. There is in ministry what we call the fishbowl effect. Right? Everybody's watching you. It can't be avoided. A servant of God, whatever station in life he or she is in, his faith and his life are often public information. You never know who's watching. I was in the gym a few weeks ago, and a, a woman said to me, like, hey, you work at that one church, right? I saw you wear a T-shirt that one time. I haven't worn that T-shirt in probably three years. And yet people remember. You never know who's watching your life. The people around you know who you are, generally speaking. If they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. There's a fishbowl effect to being in ministry at any level. And so, one, that's a reason for us to have some caution, right? We can't hide sins. We can't have skeletons in our closets. Luke 8, 17, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. But you can either resist this public aspect of ministry or you can lean into it. What you don't want to do, and there's a right and wrong kind of publicity, what you don't want to do is do like the Pharisees did. Jesus condemned them in Matthew 6, chapter 2. You don't want to sound a trumpet before yourself before you give a gift, right? That's that idea of of just parading yourself in front of everybody self-righteously. But you can leverage the public eye. Jesus encourages that for all Christians in Matthew 5, verse 16, to, to do your good deeds before others, to let your light so shine before others that your Father would be glorified in heaven that people would give glory to God because they see his work in and through you. So there is a way to leverage that publicly so that all may see your progress and you can put to silence your detractors in the Lord. So whatever your spiritual gift is, don't neglect it. Pursue it. And this calls for persistence. And this is the final attribute that I want to bring our attention to. This is the ninth trait of a good servant of Christ Jesus Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he gives the imperative and the incentive. So first, the imperative. Give heed to yourself and your teaching. Pay attention to your walk and your talk, your conduct and your content, the message and the messenger. Both of them matter, right? We are at risk when we serve in ministry, especially those who are pastors, not only of losing other people, and that's sad and difficult when it happens, but we're also at risk of losing ourselves. We know from 1 Peter 5 that Satan's like a lion looking for someone to devour, right? Ministry is war. You don't go into it half-heartedly. It's dangerous, And ministry can be this self-righteous cloak that you use to hide the secret sins in your life and convince yourself that maybe you're more godly than you really are. There's all sorts of occupational hazards. Don't take them lightly. This is war. Watch yourself. That's the imperative. Give heed. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. But then Paul gives an incentive. Why should we be so diligent and watchful and approach ministry as the war that it is? For in so doing, he says, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's an interesting phrase. We know that God alone saves, and yet he chooses to use us. Sinful wretches redeemed by grace. 
he uses us. We believe that God is sovereign over salvation, that he knew who he would choose in eternity past, that those whom he chose, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? We know that God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end, from before you were even an idea for your parents to all the way when you enter into glory. It's all God's idea. He doesn't need anyone's help, yet he chooses to use human messengers, human pastors and elders, human means in the building up of his people. How cool is that? It's, it's such a close utilization of those human messengers that Paul can actually say with a straight face, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Hey, Timothy didn't die on a cross for anyone, and neither will any other pastor. And yet he's able to speak to it in that close terminology. God is using him to save his hearers through the proclamation of the gospel. You can't care, get this, about your own salvation without caring about the salvation of others. You will save both yourself and your hearers. You can't care about one without the other. You can't be concerned for the salvation of others without also being concerned about your own salvation. We who have the gospel, who care about our own salvation, also owe the gospel to everyone. We're under obligation, just like Paul in Romans 1.14. He says he's under obligation to all sorts of people, Jew, Greek, barbarian, In Romans 9, he says he has sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews, that they would be saved. Have we ever felt sorrow, not just for our own salvation, but for someone that we want to see come to faith in Christ? Have we ever wept for the lost? Do we ever do that? And it pertains to Timothy's own salvation. In Ezekiel 33, I encourage you to take a look there this week. Those first nine verses there, God says, Ezekiel, you are a watchman on the wall. Meaning if danger is coming into the city and you do not warn, you are responsible. The blood is on your head for what happens to that city. There is danger coming. There is judgment coming. And you do warn about it and people resist and they refuse to repent, then you've saved your own head. But if you don't warn, if you don't preach and call people to repentance, you're partly responsible And people who labor in preaching and teaching the gospel are also watchmen on the wall. We see it in the New Testament, too, in Acts chapter 20. Paul says he was innocent of the blood of the Ephesian believers. That's in verses 26 and 27. And the reason for it, he says, is in verse 31. Because he gave them the whole counsel of God's word, day and night. He laid it all out there. He had warned them of everything. He had given them all of the truth. He didn't hold anything back. And so what we have to realize is that Not only is our own salvation important, but also the salvation of others. And that's a heavy burden, and that's a heavy responsibility. But remember how Paul started this whole passage in chapter 3. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Marvel with me at the fact that even though God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end, he still chooses to employ ordinary believers, elders, pastors, and everyone in between because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He chooses to use people to accomplish what only he can do in the saving of souls. 
And so we want to celebrate this morning what God does to save us. And we're going to spend some time in communion this morning, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So would you pray with me? God, this is a high calling that you give us. It's a a high set of standards, Lord, for those who are called to the ministry of the pastorate. All that matters is hearing well done, good and faithful servant, being a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that this list of traits would be embodied by the multiple men that you would call to serve on an elder team, including a full-time pastor. We pray that you would help us to embody these things in our own lives as we shepherd our children, as we shepherd our employees, as we shepherd those who we're trying to lead to the Lord, or maybe whom we have led to the Lord. God, let us live in obedience to this text, and we thank you for the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.